Welcome to Westgate. Please stand and sing as we praise our mighty, awesome God. Oh 
right, good morning. Go ahead and have a seat. My name is Adam Just, uh, uh, serving as the executive pastor of ministry here at Westgate Chapel, and glad to be uh, worshiping here with you this morning. And if you're joining us online, glad to have you uh, with us uh, online as well. So. Uh, a couple things this morning. First off, if uh, you are newer here to Westgate or uh, want to get involved in any way or share a prayer request, you can use one of these handy-dandy Connect cards in the pew rack in front of you. You can also submit those online or through the app as well. Um, also, on the way in, the same thing with our sermon notes. We're wrapping up a five-week series on the book of Habakkuk, and we have sermon notes. You can grab one of those on the way in, or also, same thing, use, use your app. You can do that electronically if that's more um, your, your style. And uh, speaking of something that's uh, really fun, really exciting, is this is the final week of February, we're excited about that. We're heading towards March. That means spring. That means Easter at the end of the month. But it also means a little bit of madness. March madness. And speaking of madness, uh, we're having a, a, a men's connecting event. If you're a guy, come on out on March 23rd um, and join us to watch. Uh, that's opening weekend of uh, the NCAA tournament. We'll watch the games, have some smash burgers, play board games. We'll throw some safe axes and uh, have a great time together. And to kind of get us in that mood, I need a, a guy, I need a volunteer who wants to come up and uh, win a Chick-fil-A gift card. So uh, who wants to be a volunteer? Come on up. Still. It's a $20 Chick-fil-A gift card. Come on. And you have to answer, come on up. Oh, Jake, come on up. We got a little guy up here too. All right, come on. We got two. Oh, okay. Come on, Come on over. He didn't take the stairs, Jake. Sorry. What's your name? Braxton. Braxton. Okay. How, how do you do at, at trivia games? Okay. Well, guess what? Thankfully, this is uh, multiple choice. All right. Multiple choice about, uh, you like basketball? A little bit. A little bit. All right. Have you ever seen the tournament? Okay, all right. Well, it's your responsibility to help Braxton, all right? Okay, so we got three, three questions. First one, all right, what's the first question? What team has won the most national titles in the history of the NCAA tournament? We have four options here. Duke, North Carolina, Kentucky, UCLA. Help them out. <laughs> you have an answer, a guess? B, North Carolina. Oh, he thought you said B. He's saying D. All right. Uh, too bad. The answer is UCLA. All right. They've won 11 national titles. They're, they're, you still have a chance. All right. All right. Second question. What is the lowest seed to win the national championship game? There's seeds 1 through 16. Sorry. It's A, 8, B, 11, C, 6, or D, 9. A. Let's see. How'd Braxton do? Got it right. All right. All right. Here we go. All right, third question. Which team has never won the NCAA Men's Basketball Championship? Which is... <laughs> Cincinnati, Ohio State, Notre Dame, or Wyoming? And uh, Adam sees you, Notre Dame. Let's see if that's right. Oh, that's right. Good job, Braxton. All right. And we have one more bonus question because you missed that first one. If you get this right, then you definitely, you're, you're, you, you've won it, okay? Why would we, like, 
We're going to show you a clip, and uh, uh, it's a final few seconds. Will the team make the basket or not make the basket? And why would we ask the question if they didn't make it? So what do you think? Make it or miss it? They're going to make it. All right, let's check it out. Let's see. UCLA, the top-ranked team in the country, number one in the West, trailing by a point. Paul Winfield, who sat out most of the first half in foul trouble, scored the go-ahead basket. One last try for the Bruins of UCLA to get into the Sweet 16. Knocked out last year in the first round by Tulsa. They don't want to lose this one. Edney going the distance. I think you can head the stairs over that way. Thank you. All right, so again, a men's connecting event, just a great opportunity for guys to come together. Yes, we'll have some fun, watch some games, um, sit side by side, and, and connect with each other. So that's on March 23rd. You can sign up uh, through uh, the app or through the, uh, our, our events page on our website. So at this time, uh, how about we stand up and just greet those around you. continue worshiping our God. Amen. Yeah.
Sure. 
professed and proclaimed how good you are. Father, we are undeserving of how good you are to us, and yet you continue to be. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. God, you are good when we don't deserve it. And Lord, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from you, the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Father, when we allow ourselves to pause and to think upon who you are and what you have done in our lives throughout the pages of Scripture, but even personally in our lives, we cannot help but profess that you are good. Remind us of that consistently, God. We have come here today to worship because you are good. And Lord, you are so deserving of our worship and of our praise. And so, God, we pray that as we worship together as a church family this morning, that, God, you would not only receive our worship, which we pour out to you, but, God, as well, that you would continue in your goodness to change and to refine us and to make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. And so we call to you and we surrender and submit ourselves to you as an act of worship today, not just in our singing, but in our seeking of you. We're reminded as well this morning, God, as we take up our offering again, that every good gift we have comes from you. And we recognize, God, that you have called us and you allow us to be a part of the work that you are doing in this world to bring the good news of your son, Jesus Christ, to the masses. Father, we pray that as we give back to you, that you would take and multiply these gifts, these, this worship of giving our resources back to you and that you would multiply them, not in terms of money, but in terms of lives that are coming to know your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we give us an act of worship, and we pray that in all of it, that you would receive glory this morning, for you are good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As you are seated, if you're in the middle aisles here, go ahead and grab those offering buckets and pass them out to the sides as we continue in a spirit of worship, taking our morning offering together.
So as we begin this morning, uh, I want to first just say welcome. If you're a guest here with us today, uh, my name is Rob Zimmerman. I'm the lead pastor here at Westgate and uh, just super excited that you've chosen to worship with us today. Uh, as I was preparing for the message, I was thinking back uh, this, uh, this past week to uh, when I was a youth pastor in California, uh, spent a number of years out there as a youth pastor. And one of my favorite trips of all time was taking my students camping in the summertime. Uh, we would go, instead of doing like taking our kids to like normal organized camps where they do everything for you, we would create our own and we would go camping and see some really awesome stuff. Anybody here like camping, right? Anybody here love camping? Some of you guys are like, as long as I'm in a trailer, not in a tent, right? We used to do the tent thing, but one of my favorite places to go, we would go almost every summer, is we would take our high school students up to Yosemite. Has anybody here ever been to Yosemite in Northern California? It is gorgeous. You'll see the picture on the screen behind me, but the Yosemite Valley is one of the most beautiful, picturesque places. Like, if I want to feel close to God, this is one of those places I go. In the middle of his creation, like, it is incredible to, to look at this valley uh, in all of its beauty and splendor. And as I would take students there. We would go away, get, want to get close to God. We would inevitably also spend some time doing fun activities. We would go hiking together. You'll see in this next picture, the Yosemite Valley is just beautiful. Lots of things to hike. You got El Capitan on the left. You've got Bridal Veil Falls down there on the bottom right. And all the way in the very back, you can see just over the ridge, uh, a place that was called uh, Half Dome. Now, uh, we would go with students. We would hike all throughout the place. Uh, it was a lot of fun. We would also chase bears. You've heard me some stories about that, but don't worry. Uh, I've, I've gotten over that part of my life, but we would chase bears away. Uh, but my friends, inevitably, especially my youth leaders, whenever we would go, always wanted to hike Half Dome. They loved the idea of going up to the very top of this peak. And uh, here's the thing about hiking Half Dome. It is a 14-mile round trip uh, hike. It, you gain over 5,000 feet in elevation as you do the hike. It takes about 12 hours round trip, so you have to begin very early in the morning. But the most famous part of this climb is known as the cables. And you'll see this in the picture. You see that line of people going up the left-hand side? That is like a sheer granite cliff, or, or not even cliff, side of a mountain that you are going up. And all you have to hold on to are these cables to pull yourself up. You'll see a video start to play here, and uh, it'll give you a picture of what it looks like. Uh, people have easily, because you don't have anywhere to clip into, as they're holding onto this cable, some people, when the ground gets slick, it's sheer granite, and so very easy to slide. Some people have slid off of the mountain. I wouldn't recommend that. Uh, now, you get queasy when you look at just how steep this is. But here's the deal. My problem with this hike, I never went. Wasn't the fact, like, I thought that would be fun and strenuous. I did not want to do this, which is get up to the very top and look over the edge, okay? I have this insane fear of, oh, that makes me ill just looking at it. Oh, oh I, I really like. Anybody here uh, not like heights? Any? Okay, yeah, thank you. Praise Jesus. Um, God did not mean for us to go be dumb on cliffs, but um, ever since I was a young boy, I have had this intense fear of heights. That's why I would never go. My dad took me one time up in the mountains and took me out to a cliff, and even as a young boy, like, there was nothing in me that was like, oh, look how cool, I'm one step from my death. Um, I never had that feeling. 
Uh, also, you know, I, I can remember going with my family, standing on top of the Hoover Dam spillway, make my stomach sick, sitting in the front row of an upper deck baseball game. Don't love that either. When my kids were young and running across the balcony and then they would climb on it like, oh, it's just like I can't handle that feeling, right? I've always struggled with that because I don't like to put myself necessarily in hard situations if I don't have to. I avoid them actually at all costs. I like my life to be nice and tidy and safe like most people, I think, in this world, some of you are a little crazy, you would do that. But I don't love situations that are scary, fearful, dangerous, uncertain, uncomfortable. Like most people, I like my life to be a little bit predictable and safe. I like it to be absent of difficulty or fear or trial. And throughout our lives, it's interesting what I have found is that over these last five weeks of we, as we have been talking about this together, we have actually found that life is, typically is anything but safe. Would you agree? Amen? Life can be difficult. It has many hard situations. And we find ourselves in all sorts of uncomfortable, difficult, fearful, or even painful situations throughout life. And often when this happens, as we've talked together over the last five weeks, we find ourselves struggling to trust God. Oftentimes, questioning where he is in the midst of our hurting and our broken world. We've been in a series together entitled, Why? Trusting God When You Don't Understand. And whether it's wrestling with the chaos of our world, the natural disasters, global terrorism, upheaval or turmoil within our government or political system, or the many different trials and difficulties that we will face in our personal lives, through all of it, we've been asking this question. What do we do and how do we respond when we face trouble and life does not feel safe? We've done this by looking together at the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. And the reason we've done this is because the Hebrew prophet Habakkuk faced circumstances that were not altogether very different from us. Uh, he, he himself wrestled, as you have gone through this series with us, hopefully you have begun to realize that his circumstances were much like ours. Difficult circumstances that often leave us in a place of questioning God. As we've been in this series over the last five weeks this morning, we are going to wrap it all up together. And what I found interesting about this series is it has felt like every single week feels like a little bit of a cliffhanger, no pun intended. But we, we go so far in the story and we don't quite give the nice tidy ending because there isn't a nice tidy ending in the book of Habakkuk. He continues to wrestle with his issues, and it's a conversation from Habakkuk, and then God answers, and then Habakkuk, and then God answers. And this morning, we're going to kind of bring a capstone to this, uh, this book by taking a look at Habakkuk's final response. But in order to do so and to really embrace it well, I want us to do a very quick recap this morning of where we have been to understand how this ties together. Uh, if you have your notes, you can follow along with me, and uh, you'll see in our recap of Habakkuk. Habakkuk. It begins in chapter 1, letter A in your sermon notes, with Habakkuk asking God, God, where are you? Why are you silent? Habakkuk has been wrestling with some things that he's seeing take place in his nation and in the, his, his culture and world around him, and he has been calling out and crying out to God, God, where are you? Why are you silent? Why are you not acting? 
And he's wrestling with God's silence in this moment. You'll remember that at this time, the southern kingdom of Judah, while they had had a history of walking with God and things had been going well, they were now in a time period where they had a king that had led largely the nation away from God. They were worshiping other idols. As you look in the scripture, it defines Judah at this time as a place that was rampant with violence, rampant with evil, where there was tons of idol worship that was taking place, and injustice as people turned on their neighbors, their family, their friends. It was kind of an ugly existence. And Habakkuk is lamenting to God, God, these are your people. Where are you? This situation deserves that you would step in and fix the problem, and yet, no matter how much I cry out, I can't hear you. And what he does in this moment is he accuses God of injustice. God, you should be doing this. And what I loved about this as we looked at it in the first week is that Habakkuk, when he does this, becomes very relatable to us. He stands in solidarity literally with every person who has ever prayed for peace, and yet they continue to only see unending war. He's in solidarity with all of us who have prayed for God's good to come on the earth, but yet continue to see that evil seems to take the day. He relates well to all of us who have prayed beside a sick bed only to be met with death or with those who pray for love to come into a home but yet only experience hatred and anger or for those who pray for serenity or peace in their hearts but find themselves sinking further into anxiety or depression. You see, when he laments and he cries out to God, God, where are you? He he aligns himself to things that we ourselves often feel. And what I have most appreciated about Pastor Steve's message in week one kicking off this series was that he reminded us that it is okay to cry out to God and to lament the difficult things that happen in our lives. We live in a culture today, especially a Christian culture, that I don't believe does grief and lament well. I was talking with a couple that I'm doing premarital counseling with uh, Uh, just the other night, and as we were talking together, I was talking with them about how oftentimes in our culture, especially men, do not do the full range of emotions and that we feel uh, well. Like, men are typically really good at things like joy and excitement and happiness, and we're also really good at anger. But one area that I've found that we often struggle with is grief and sadness and allowing ourselves to go there. And it's not just men. In our culture today, statistics will show you that this is even growing amongst women. We live in a culture that tells us that we need to have it all put together. That we need to just, when things are tough and difficult, we just need to kind of stuff it down and tough it out and make everything look good on the outside. But can I tell you, here's here's the problem with that. Often in church, there's an unspoken thought that if we lament or grieve, that somehow we don't trust God. And what happens is we take and don't allow ourselves to feel the full range of emotions that God created us to experience and that are healthy for us to experience, and we bottle up our sadness, our anger, or even our hard questions for God because we feel if I ask them, somehow I am faithless when we're struggling. And while we may look tough on the outside, those feelings that are being bottled up over time and our lack of dealing with them causes even deeper problems when we find ourselves stuck, stuck in cycles of fear, 
cycles of anger and grief or even and most often stuck in our relationship with God, feeling like we don't know the path to move forward. God, you're silent and I don't know what to do. Lament is a necessary aspect of the Christian life and God can handle our grief, our fear, our anger, and our hard questions. And I want you to do something with me before we move on with this recap this morning. What is the situation that you have been dealing with, where you have been wrestling with God as we have gone through this series? Hopefully it pops straight into your mind, but what is that thing where maybe you've been saying, God, where are you? Or God, why have you allowed this to happen? Maybe it's something you're dealing with right now. It's a fresh wound in your soul. Or maybe it's something where you have been questioning, God, why would you let this happen? And you're struggling in your relationship with God. Maybe it's a situation from your past that has never healed. And you still sit in that place of not knowing what to do with it and how to reconcile what has happened with God. I want you to think about it. What is that thing this morning? Whatever it may be, I want you to name it. Right where you're sitting, in your heart, in your mind, I want you to name that thing clearly, and I want you to hold on to it this morning. Hold on to the tension of that as we continue to walk through the passage together. We see that Habakkuk cries out to God, God, where are you? God, why are you silent? But let her be. We see as we continue past verse four of chapter one that God speaks. And when God speaks, he reveals this ultimate truth. My ways are higher, Habakkuk, than your ways. God doesn't answer Habakkuk's question directly. He says, why are you silent? Where are you? And God just goes a totally different direction. And what God does do is that he reveals that he has already been at work. But long before Habakkuk even thought, God has been orchestrating everything that is happening in order to bring about his ultimate purposes. And he reveals to Habakkuk that Babylon, this incredibly evil nation that is known for their violence and the horrific evil, is going to come and wipe out the southern kingdom of Judah, basically lay them waste, take their land from them, and take all of the people and exile them off to a foreign land where they will be forced to assimilate into the Babylonian culture, losing their identity. I mean, it is a horrible picture that God paints. And as he paints this picture, there is no doubt that it sent Habakkuk reeling even further to listen to God say, this is what's going to happen to his people And here's the deal. There's no doubt that while Habakkuk is reeling, we often find ourselves in the same situation when God doesn't answer the way that we would expect. We talked about the fact that our common equation in life is what? I have a problem. There's an easy solution. I've figured it out. God loves me. Therefore, God should do what I think is best, right? But what's the problem with that? The problem is, is that all I take into account is what I think, And I have a very narrow viewpoint of life. I am stuck right here in my present situation. I just know that it's uncomfortable and I want out. But God is not nearsighted. God sees the whole of history. And not only does he see my life from before I was formed in the womb, he sees it till I am dead and he sees it in every individual person's life in this world and he is over it all, over all of history, writing and weaving a story to bring about the greatest good in our lives if we would put our faith and our trust in him. 
What we talked about in this week was we said that oftentimes the difficult seasons we walk through are like winter seasons. And we said that winter, one of its strengths is that things need to die. Sometimes God allows us to walk through these seasons because his purpose is very different than ours. There are things that he wants to chafe away in our lives and move them away, chisel them off, and begin a new work in us. There are things often when we walk through these seasons that need to die. But what I have always found, and I think we always find in Scripture, is that when we walk through difficult winter seasons of our life is that God is always teaching us dependence, always. Will I depend upon you? God's answer to Habakkuk, Habakkuk, you gotta have a broader view. My ways are higher than your ways. Now, letter C, Habakkuk does not like this answer, and he questions God's character. But in the midst of that, he also waits patiently for God's reply. Habakkuk clearly didn't like the answer. Now, he's not just irked by God's silence, which he was in the first four verses, but now he's questioning how God could allow such an evil nation to to basically run over God's people, who are no doubt in his mind far more righteous than the Babylonians. And he begins to question God's character, God. You're a holy God. How in the world could you allow evil to overtake righteousness? That's an interesting thing when we dig into it. But what I want you to see is this, is that when we question God's character and how he could allow painful circumstances into our life, what we often do is we allow our doubts to become destructive. And not only do we allow our doubts to be destructive, but we oftentimes spend more time talking about God rather than talking to him. And I want you to remember that. I want you to hold on to that. If there is one thing that you walk away from this five-week series in the book of Habakkuk with, I want you to walk away with this one thing. Habakkuk was a man that as he wrestled and he struggled with what God was doing, and God's answers is that he never ran away from him. He ran to him. He went to him with his doubts. He went to him with his wrestling with his character. He went to him with the pain and the difficulty that he was experiencing, the turmoil that was in his soul. In his anger, in his frustration, in his disappointment and doubt, what you see is a man who was consistently moving toward God. And this isn't the normal gut reaction for human beings. You know this to be true. What do we do when hard things happen and we question God? We often shut him off. We put up a wall. We turn away and we run the other direction. What did Habakkuk do? He moved in. But what we see is not with Habakkuk the normal gut reaction that we might experience as sinful human beings, but the decisive response of a man who has been there before. He had a practice and a habit of going to God in the good times and the difficult times. I love how he waits patiently, and he is a beautiful example for us of how we should approach God in these seasons. And yet, even as he questions God's character, God speaks again, letter D. And here's essentially what Steve shared with us last week in a nutshell. Babylon is going to get theirs. God tells Habakkuk, look, in all this I want you to understand, righteousness will prevail. My holiness will prevail. Babylon is going to experience uh, the, the violence and the horrible things that they're doing. They are going to get it even greater and to an even greater degree. But I want you to hear this. I want you to listen to the woes that that uh, are spoken over uh, Babylon because there's something really unique about it that I want you to catch from our passage last week. What is it that God says? He says, woe to him 
who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed. Woe to him who takes advantage of his neighbor. Woe to him who worships idols made by man. This must have been music to Habakkuk's ear. God's going to move. God's going to act. He's going to get Babylon in the end, and I can't wait. But here's what you quickly miss in this passage. Babylon's name isn't actually attached to those woes. And while he is speaking of Babylon, what he is actually speaking is a very important truth for us to catch. Those woes also apply to Judah. If you take every single one of those woes that I just read, it is a description of what was taking place in Judah at that same time. It is very easy for us to look and say that our standard of holiness is not based on a holy God, but on somebody who is worse than us. And Habakkuk's biggest mistake as he questioned God's character was that his measuring stick was, wait, God, your people are more righteous than them. How can you allow that? Failing to recognize that while we may have a list of sins that seem worse than others, God does not. Every single sin that is committed is an affront to the perfect moral holiness of God. Every single sin, every single small, tiny white lie that we tell or little thing that we think is insignificant, Jesus had to die on a cross so that you could be reconciled to God because of it. It helps us to understand that while we may place a hierarchy on what is bad, worse, maybe better in God's eyes, all of it is an affront to his holiness. Judah would also get theirs as well. And God was going to use Babylon to refine and to purify his people. And he says this, the major theme of our passage last week, that the righteous will live by faith. The standard of righteousness is not that you are better than the next person. The standard of righteousness is our holy God. His call is that we would put him first before all things, not just believing in who he is, but truly following and trusting him with our whole hearts and our whole life. And I love the way that chapter two ends with this verse. And it essentially tells us this, that the sovereign God is in control. It's your next fill-in. It tells us that the sovereign God is in control. And I'll read this verse to you. It says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. It is this picture of the majesty of heaven and God and all of his holiness and his control and his power over all things. Man, this has been a powerful, powerful moving thing. We're not gonna to be continued after today, I promise. I want us to wrap this thing up by taking a look at chapter three together this morning and we're going to see Habakkuk's final reply to God in all of this. But here's the deal. Listen carefully to what Habakkuk says. His final reply is instructive to how we process our seasons of pain, suffering, fear, disappointment, our seasons of lament, and especially God's silence or what appears to be his silence and when we question God. This is going to help us to process these things. And Habakkuk chapter three begins this way in verse two. The very first part of verse two says this. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I have heard, Lord, of your fame. In other words, letter A, Lord, I know intuitively who you are. 
What he proclaims and professes is that there is a knowledge that he has gained, not only from his conversation with God throughout the chapters that we have read, but also his experience of God, that he knows who he is, and he has been reminded of who God is. Look at how Habakkuk uh, defines this as we read verses 3 through 4 together, because he gives this picture of his understanding of who God is. In verses 3 through 4, he says this, God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens, and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Now, I want us to just dissect this a little bit to understand how Habakkuk is speaking of how he knows who God is. He says God came from Taman, the holy one from Mount Paran. Taman and Mount Paran together, these two uh, places, these two areas refer to God's coming in the past when he gave the law to his people and he led them through the wilderness as they were moving towards the promised land. And so he says God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. But what I really want you to capture and notice is the descriptive use of titles that Habakkuk uses that are very easy to quickly gloss over when you read the text. And it's here, not just in these verses, but throughout the entire section of 3 through, 15, 3 through 19. Notice the titles. He starts off saying, God came from Taman. The word that is used here in the Hebrew is Eloa. Eloa. It means the creator. It's a word that we don't often see in the Old Testament. It's one of the least used names for God, but it is a name that means God is the creator, the God of the universe, the one who has formed the stars and put them in the sky, the one who created everything that we even see and experience, our very own lives. God is the one who has created it all. He references God as creator, but then he says the Holy One also, in a parallel sense, the Holy One from Mount Paran. When he says Holy One, what he does is he emphasizes the the, uh, complete moral purity of God. We talked about this a few weeks ago. He talks about the complete moral purity of God and yet also his radical otherness. In other words, God is holy. He is perfectly moral, but he is also set apart from any other God or anything else in all of creation. He sits above it all. He is the Holy One. He is the Creator. He is the Holy One. If you go down to verse 8, he references him as Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And you'll remember that whenever you see that in the Old Testament, that is the divine name of God that was given to Moses in the book of Exodus, the name Yahweh. And what What that would have drawn to mind is the covenant God who always fulfills his promises. It would have been a reminder that he was speaking of God who went to Abraham and made a covenant and say, from you will come a nation and a people that I will bless and that will become incredibly numerous and they will be a blessing to the entire world and this promise is made not on what you do but on the fact that I have declared it and I will fulfill it and I will do it. And God shows his incredible love through this covenant that he makes. Do you see what he's doing? He's weaving together these names, helping us to understand the depth of his knowledge of God. Even in verse 19, he uses this word for Yahweh again, but he connects with it the word sovereign, that he is the sovereign Lord, the God who is in control of all things. In other words, God has purpose in the things that he does and that he chooses as he has control over all of creation. Notice the titles that he uses. You are the creator, 
the God of the universe, you are perfectly holy and moral and there is no one that is like you. You are Yahweh, the one who made your covenant with us and that covenant was a promise you said you would fulfill and it shows the depth of your love to us and you are the God who is in control of all things which helps us to understand that there are purposes that you are at work accomplishing that we could never understand. And all of this, Habakkuk recalls God's glory, his splendor, and his power. But here's what I want you to catch. When we are in the throes of suffering, sin, or trials of any kind, this is what we so often forget. We so often forget the power of God. We forget that God is the creator, the one who put the stars and the moon in the heavens and knows each one of them by name that he is the one that created every living thing on this planet, that the scriptures say that he knew us before we were formed in our mother's womb, that he is intimately involved as the creator of us. We forget so easily when we go through trial that there is nobody like him, that there is no God that has the power that he has. We so quickly forget the covenant that he has made with us by sending his son Jesus into the world to die on a cross, demonstrating the depth of his love for us. And we forget that he is in control of all things, that he doesn't just see the narrow moments of our struggles, but he sees the whole picture and he's working it out for our good, not just good in this life, but good for all of eternity, and not just for us, but for all people. So quickly, we forget the power of God. And Habakkuk proclaims this first, Lord, I know who you are. I'm not forgetting. But here's the thing, we also often forget the power that is in remembering what God has done. And in Habakkuk 3, the second part of verse 2, what does he say? Not only, Lord, I have heard of your fame, but he says, I stand in awe of your deeds. What does he do? He begins, letter B, to remember God's faithfulness in the past. He spends time reflecting in the next verses that we're going to read together, verses 5 through 15, how God himself was so present in, in, in Israel's life and how he led them in the exodus out of Egypt and brought them to the promised land and consistently went before them, paving the way. He reminds himself in very poetic language of how God has done this. I want you to read it with me. He says this. He says, plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed, but he marches on forever. I saw the tents of Cushion in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea and you rode your horses and your chariots to victory? You uncovered your bow and called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as, a, as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding, you trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. 
I mean, he sits and he goes into this place of remembering God's faithfulness and how God had continually been faithful to his people. But here's the deal. When we're in the throes of pain and suffering and sin or trials of many kinds, we so often forget God's faithfulness in the past. Many times it's as if we have never walked through a hard valley or even a steep incline. Our mind immediately shuts off all memory of our past trials and how God's mighty hand intercepted our fears and anxieties and gave us an even stronger faith in the past. We become lazy in our spiritual disciplines and seeking of God. We allow our mind battles to take over and we find ourselves in the same place that we were before, needing to learn the same truths over again, but in a new and a fresh way. I want you to do a small exercise with me this morning. You'll see that in this section of your notes, I left a fairly good sizable amount of space. What I would love for you to do in this moment is you think about that thing that you have named, that you have been wrestling with and struggling with, that you hold on to. Would you shift your mind for a moment and do this? Would you just simply write five or six things into that open space of how you have seen God's faithfulness in your life? Maybe it's his faithfulness in the current situation that you are struggling with, but you have seen him faithful. Maybe it's a situation, not only that you're currently walking through now, but maybe it's looking at past situations that you've walked through and you have seen God's faithfulness. Maybe it's not even a situation. Maybe it's just that you've seen God's goodness as we sang about this morning, and it reminds you of how he is faithful. Maybe it's something that you remember from God's word of how he has been faithful and always will be faithful. Would you take just a moment and write some of those things down? Do it right now. How have you seen God's faithfulness in your life? Quick, the things that come to mind. I didn't make my list this week. I wanted to just go with it in the same way that I'm asking you to, but I can sit and I can remember throughout my life so many ways that I've seen God's faithfulness. The way that he, put, he, he allowed me to be born into a Christian family with parents that consistently pointed me to him. He was faithful. I can see ways that he was faithful as I was growing up and the way that he provided friendships around me that I needed in times where I had no, um, where I lacked self-esteem and where I felt like I didn't have any worth and yet he consistently put people around me that would build me up and continue to point me to him. I can look at the painful moments of my life that I've had to walk through, the loss of jobs, things happening in the church that I just thought, how in the world could people do such horrible, evil things to another person? And I have watched and seen how God has been faithful and taken horrible, hard circumstances and turned them into things that are good. I have wrestled with many personal issues and in the end continued to see it. Like I could, I could sit here and just talk about it forever this morning. But you know what I love most of all? is that I can look back and remember that God loved me so much that even though I'm a sinful human being that fails often, he sent his son Jesus into this world to die on a cross to pay for my sin so that I could be reconciled to him. And in that, he has proven to me the depth of his love and his faithfulness that is unending, that his purposes for me are not bad, but his purposes are that I would spend all of eternity with him. I don't know what it is that you wrote down this morning, but what I want you to see is this is that Habakkuk, as he wrestles 
and hears from God, his response is this, Lord, I will not forget who you are. I know who you are. I know your character. I know many things about the type of God that you are, and I remember the faithfulness that you have shown in the past. I will not forget. And this is something that we need to practice in our own lives. Even the psalmist writes in Psalm 77. I want you to like relate with, with the psalmist here. Listen to the words that he says as he laments his difficult situations. He says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the days of my trouble, I seek the Lord In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I mean, here's a guy that is like, I can't sleep at night. When I call out to you, it's just a struggle. No matter what I do, no matter how I try to focus, this is hard, God. But listen to his words in verses 5 through 6. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night and let me meditate in my heart. And then my spirit made a diligent search. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all of your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Why does the psalmist say this? Because he knows that as he tunes his heart, not to his troubles, but to the God who has always been faithful to him, that it changes the way that he sees his situation and allows him to continue to put his faith and trust in God. And Habakkuk has come to this place of understanding that because of who God is and how he has been faithful, that he can continue to trust him. And he continues, if you look at all of verse 2 in chapter 3, he says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. And then he says, repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. And in wrath, remember your mercy. In other words, God, I will wait expectantly for your faithfulness to come again. I believe that it will come. And what I want you to catch is he has decisively taken his eyes off of the people and circumstances that he is facing and put them squarely on God. And he has remembered that all the ways that God has been faithful and he expectantly asks for and waits on God to repeat his faithfulness again. It's not just a one-time request, but a daily push and a daily searching and seeking after God and trusting him with all of his heart as he waits expectantly for God to answer. But as he waits, what I want you to understand is this. Oftentimes, when we're going through struggle, the testimonies that we will hear, and in churches, bring people up on the platform to share, which is good, and it is encouraging, but oftentimes, it's people who have struggled, and they've had it all work out for good, and they can just tell you the good story, but you're left there going, but like, why am I not getting my answer? Why is God still silent with me? Like, we can wrestle in that place. Here's what I love about Habakkuk. You don't get the nice, tidy bow with him. Listen to these last words that he says. He says in verse 16, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. He acknowledges what God has said is gonna happen and this is not going to be fun. I do not wanna go through with this, but what does he say? 
though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, so the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. Like, man, it's a hopeless picture. What does he say in the next verse? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord and I will be joyful in God my Savior. Letter D What he says is this, even though I don't understand and I can't see the end in sight, he hasn't come to this conclusion because he's received the happy ending to his struggle. It's because he is in the midst of it. And even though he doesn't understand it, he can't see the end in sight, what does he profess? He professes, I will choose to worship you, God. Yet I will rejoice. I will make the choice to worship you because I know who you are. I know your faithfulness in the past, and I know that you will come through again, and so I will worship you. And I would ask you this morning, with that thing that you're holding on to, that you're struggling to let go of, can you, in the midst of the struggle with God, know who God is, know of his faithfulness, and make the choice, an active choice, to worship him? but not just to worship him. He says, I will choose to worship you, but I will also find my joy in your salvation. In other words, the reason that he worships is that he knows that in the same way that God was faithful in the past, he will be faithful in the future, that salvation will come. And you can know this truth as well this morning, that if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that there's an eternity that waits you in heaven. Your salvation is coming. You see, Habakkuk learned is that his trust was not in his circumstances or the broken things of the world. His dependence of finding joy was not in those things, but his joy would be in God and God alone and in his salvation because this is not the end of the story. And lastly, letter E, he professes this. He says, for you alone are the one who will give me strength. Now, I have waited years literally, to preach this last verse of Habakkuk. I have never preached on the book of Habakkuk. I don't even think I taught it with student ministry. But this last verse is probably one of my favorite verses in the entire book. And here's why. When I went to Israel a number of years ago, I had the opportunity to walk through with the team a place called Wadi Zen. And you'll see the pictures that are up here on the screen. Wadi Zin is a a huge riverbed, one of the biggest ones in the Negev region. And this place is is pretty much, uh, most people believe that as it sits at the southern end of the entrance into the promised land for the Israelites, they believe that the Israelites themselves likely could have traveled through this wadi on their way to the promised land. Some people say and think maybe this is one of the places where Moses struck the rock and water came out of it. Not sure if that's the case. But it's a very beautiful place to be. And as we walked through and our professor was kind of giving us the history and the lay of the land, you'll see it's like kind of lush. There's springs that are coming out of it and these really high cliffs. But all throughout the area, you'll see ibex. If you know what ibex are, they're like little deer. And you could see them. They're just kind of sitting all over the mountainside. But as we were walking, our professor stopped us in a profound moment. And he goes, Rob, guys, look. And he points up onto the high cliffs. And he says, do you see that? And all the way up at the very top was this ibex that was walking. Not not on the ridge, but if you could zoom in, you can't see it because they didn't have Google Pixels back then. It was a little disc camera. But almost to the top 
there was this ibex that was walking on this ledge that was no wider than the hoof of his foot. And he was walking like it was a Sunday stroll, like it was no big deal. I told you when we started, I hate heights. I could not be an ibex. Like that thing was in a precarious, dangerous situation and I like safety, I don't do that. But here he goes walking along the way and my professor pulls out his Bible and he reads these words. Habakkuk chapter three, verse 19. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the high places. It was one of the most powerful moments for me as I saw this verse come to life before my very eyes. As this tiny little deer walked on the high places where life seemed precarious, one slip and everything could fall apart. And yet it walked with sheer confidence. And this is the picture that we get as God and Habakkuk have this conversation. And Habakkuk says, God, you alone are my strength. You will make my feet like the feet of the deer as I tread on those high places. Why is it that Habakkuk was able to trust in God even though the story hadn't been tied up in a nice bow and everything had been fixed? Because he knew that God would be faithful and that God would give him the strength that he needed to endure until his plan had unveiled. And that is his promise to you today. Will you do me a favor this morning? Will you profess to me over that thing that you have been holding on to, the questions that you have of God, the things that have been so painful and difficult where you feel like God is silent? Will you proclaim over them with me today, the sovereign Lord is my strength? Say it with me. The sovereign Lord is my strength. I want you to say it again, but I want you to say it with conviction. The sovereign Lord is my strength. I want you to hold your hands out, clench your fists with me, and I want you to take that thing that you've been holding on to and open up your hands and proclaim, the sovereign Lord is my strength. I believe, God, that you will give me everything that I need because I know who you are. I know what you have done previously in my life and your faithfulness, and I can trust in you. You are my strength. I will remember your faithfulness, and in that, I will choose to worship. Yet, I will rejoice. Father, we release all of these things to you this morning the doubts, the pain, the difficulty, the questions as we wrestle with your silence. Father, we release it to you because we know who you are. And though maybe the situation isn't fixed, the things that we have been walking through, we don't have all the answers. We know who you are. We know that you are good. We know that you have been faithful. And so it reminds us as we move into those places that you will continue to be faithful and we wait expectantly for that knowing that you will work out your perfect plan in our lives for good. And so Lord, this morning all across this room, I ask that your Holy Spirit would move and where we have been bound by doubt and questions of you and struggling to turn to you as we wrestle with difficult situations, would you free us, God, as we put our faith and our trust in you to worship you with all of our hearts. Let's sing together.
praise the Lord together. God is good. Amen. God is so good. And I hope this morning that you hold on to that truth. No matter what you've been going through, what you've been wrestling with, God is good and he is faithful. Ask him to be faithful again. And I promise you that he will come through. This morning as we close, we have one other thing that we want to do together. If you would sit with us for just a moment. One of the things we have been super excited about over the last many weeks is the opportunity that we have had to pray and to send people out uh, into the mission field. And uh, we get to do again the same this morning. And so I'm going to hand things over to Julianne to share a little bit about that. Yeah, good morning, church. God is writing good stories in and through our people and in and around the world. And so as you guys may know, this is Luke Hadid, Maddie Franz Hadid. They uh, grew up here at Westgate Middle School Sweethearts, serving God here. Their families attend and um, have been saying yes to Jesus, yes to serving Westgate students, yes to each other. And um, they finished college and are just continuing to figure out what serving Jesus with their marriage looks like. And so um, a little bit of their Westgate story is they said yes to serving in the Dominican Republic with our high school team back in 2018. There's many familiar faces up there. And I got to lead that trip with Ty Franz, Maddie's dad. And then a couple other points along the way is um, this past summer, we started a a partnership with Inkalink Costa Rica and Maddie actually got to attend as a leader with her high school sisters. Um, So there's that group. And um, in that, God has been uh, just stirring with many pieces and parts along the way from the Franz family and the Hadid family and then Luke and Maddie saying yes. And so this Thursday, they will be leaving for a six-month internship uh, to work with Inkalink Costa Rica with hands open for up to two years, and they'll be working with Jake and Jen Edwards, our partners down there. So I'm going to ask Luke, Luke, tell us about Inkalink Costa Rica and what you guys will be doing as you guys head down on Thursday. Yeah, uh, so Maddie and I are going to be leaving um, on Thursday, uh, picking up our lives, moving to San Jose, Costa Rica to serve as uh, interns uh, for six months with Inkalink. And there, uh, we're going to be serving as the general managers of Tucan Tico Cafe. Um, and then also jumpstarting a college campus ministry at the University of Costa Rica. Um, and Tucan Tico is going to serve as um, Inkling Costa Rica's first uh, financial engine. So uh, it can support and help uh, Inkalink's ministries in Costa Rica to self-sustain. And so this is a huge jumpstart for uh, Inkalink for the team. Um, and uh, also this cafe is just like a couple blocks, a really short walk from the campus. So it's going to be a really great platform for Maddie and I and the Inkling team to uh, just engage and connect with students on campus um, and hopes with the ultimate goal to start a whole ministry. And uh, as we go, um, our, uh, we're just going to keep open hearts and uh, open hands to what God has for us beyond this six-month internship as well. Yeah. That's so exciting. So yeah, whereas you guys have your hands open, we know that you're leaving on Thursday. You've already packed up and are preparing to go. Um, We can pray for your traveling mercies, but I would love Maddie for you to share some prayer requests. And as Maddie is sharing prayer requests, will you guys take time to jot them down? Um, Because we, the church, are going to be praying for them this week and beyond. And as we're... uh, doing this uh, if their family would come up, their family, the Hadid and France families, as well as any staff and elders as we do our commissioning prayer. So Maddie, tell us how we can be praying for you this week and beyond. Yeah. 
Um, we would just love prayers um, for this big transition, um, as it is a new culture with a new language that we do not know. <laughs> um, in addition, we would just love prayers um, for quick and easy connections um, that we would be able to um, build our own community there, um, as well as um, just to seek out those people that we will be able to pour into. Um, and then lastly, for um, the hearts of those that we will be coming into contact with on a daily basis, um, just that their hearts would be open um, and willing um, to Luke and I, but also, and most importantly, to the Lord. Yeah, there are just, there's so many layers of why this story is so cool. I just, when we talk about the goodness of God, there are many moments along the way where we can say, yes, God is good. Yes, God is good in our friends' lives and in their families. And so we are, uh, it's privileged to be their sending church. They are ours. They are an extension of us serving alongside our brothers and sisters of the Christian Missionary Alliance in San Jose, Costa Rica. And um, so we as a church want to pray, pray them out. We want to have reminders. Maybe when you're drinking your coffee, that'll be your moment to think, oh, I should pray for Luke and Maddie. Um, you can encourage them on their website. We have ways to get updates and support them, ways to send supplies that are, will help them get launched. But I have asked Ty to be our initiator since he uh, led that team with us so many years ago. He gets to send them out. So we're going to pray for Luke and Maddie, commission them. And if you, church, would be willing, you can extend your hand as a way of saying, yes, we, the church, are going to send them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, which is coming out of the book of Acts when um, Saul and Barnabas are being sent. They, the church fasted and prayed, laid hands on them, sent them out. And so that's what we are modeling here. Ty, pray with, lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are sovereign. And I thank you that Luke and Maddie have chosen to follow you and be obedient to where you are leading them. I pray that you will bless them as they travel and Lord, help them to connect and build a community uh, in Costa Rica, surround them with, with new friends uh, and bless their new relationships. I pray that you will help them to learn the language uh, and get acclimated very quickly. I pray, Lord, that you will strengthen their faith uh, no matter what uh, they face. I pray that you'll just equip them each day uh, by the power of your spirit. And Father, I pray that you also open up the, uh, the hearts of those they come in contact with. Uh, allow them to build relationships. Allow them to help foster this new, uh, this new ministry and uh, help them to spread the, the gospel of Jesus and that many will come to know you and to love you. And so we just praise you and we thank you for Luke and Maddie. Yes, God, I remember sitting with Luke and Maddie at this initial meeting, and um, what they were most excited was telling of your goodness, that you have changed their lives, and that your message is for all. That's what pumps them up and makes them, gives them the motivation to do hard things. It's because they've encountered you, and it's changed their lives, and they want to share that with others. And so we thank you for their big yes uh, this week, and the many yeses that are to come as they walk with their hands open in service um, as they move into a new apartment and build new relationships and learn a language and work with the national church and work with the international workers. God, uh, just we pray blessing over their marriage, keep them united. We pray blessing over their ministry and may they just feel so close to you above all. God, I pray for us as their sending church, as their literal family and their church family. 
um, that we will care for them well. Show us, God, what that looks like to be their senders in prayer and encouragement. Thank you, God, for the way you've provided for them financially for this initial six months. We just praise you and know that you're at work, and we're grateful and privileged to be part of it. And so with your authority in the name of Jesus, in the name of God, the Father, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, we send them out with you. Um, Yes, for your glory, God, because you're the big deal here. We thank you for Luke and Maddie and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you again, church family, for worshiping with us today. You have the opportunity to connect with Luke and Maddie at the close of our service out uh, near the cafe. And so I'd encourage you to stop by and just encourage them, be praying for them. And as well as we close our service this morning, our prayer team will be here at the front on both sides and would love the opportunity. If there are any needs that you have for healing, things that you've been wrestling with with God and you want somebody to talk to, uh, we'd encourage you to come forward for prayer here at the close of our service. But as you go this morning, go remembering that God is faithful. He has been so faithful to you guys and we're excited to see how it will continue. And he is going to be faithful in your life. Go share that goodness with the world as you go out today. God bless you. We'll see you next Sunday.